This is Subject to Power, and I'm El Kemihira. I think it's beyond dispute that male domination or patriarchy is our default system. If you look across the world's cultures, it's an inescapable fact that male rule is in effect everywhere. Feminism, as a theory, as a practice, is the only system of thinking and action that challenges the status quo of patriarchy and that takes women's viewpoint and women's interests into account. As an analysis, feminism is the only framework that makes patriarchy visible and therefore challengeable. And feminists, the women who speak, write, and shape feminist thought, are, by nature of what they do, brave people, because they're going against a powerful world order that definitely doesn't want to have its power challenged. And feminists who are outspoken, out there, public, vocal, like my guest Megan Murphy, I think of them a little bit like canaries in the coal mine. If those feminists, the ones with blogs and podcasts, the journalists, the academics, if those feminists are deliberately silenced, chased out of their jobs, their institutions, they're deplatformed, even chased out of their countries, if they're threatened with violence and intimidated, we should be thinking really hard about why what they're saying is evoking so much rage and hostility. In this episode, I talk with Megan about the high cost she's paid for going against the grain. So you're the founder and creator of Feminist Current, Canada's leading feminist media outlet, would you say? So I founded Feminist Current in 2012. I was living in Vancouver. I was born and raised in Vancouver. I had been living for a short period of time on this little Gulf island off the coast of BC called Denman Island and had gotten involved in the pirate radio station over there, um, which was set up in a trailer in the middle of a sheep field. But um, <laughs> I had uh, been taking some women's studies courses part time. I had been doing some documentary filmmaking courses. I had been doing some creative writing courses, sort of trying to figure out my direction. But I was always interested in doing something in journalism. And I really liked radio. So when I moved back to Vancouver from the island, I wanted to continue doing radio and got involved with a feminist collective that was doing a radio show on a Vancouver co-op radio. We started a website. We started a blog. I was doing pretty much all of the blogging, writing, just because I think that was what my interest was. And I was also able to connect with the the feminist community in Vancouver and had the great opportunity of, I mean, this is one of the blessings of doing podcasting, radio, et cetera, is that you have the opportunity to talk to and learn from all of these people, these experts, people who have been involved in movements much longer than you have, you know, speak to all sorts of subjects that, that you're less familiar with. And so I started talking to women who had been in prostitution, women who'd worked with women in prostitution, women who set up transition houses and really were there from the beginning of the, the second wave feminist movement in Canada, as well as, you know, I was also talking to women in the U.S. and in the U.K. And that's when I got really interested in 
in radical feminism in particular, I came of age during the third wave and it never quite sat right with me, but I tried to make it sit right with me. You know, like I tried to be into, you know, feminist pornography. I'm going to put quotations around that because I think it's a pretty ridiculous term, but you know, I tried to understand this postmodernist approach wherein if I feel empowered by this, then it is empowering. If I feel good about objectification, then objectification can be feminist. If I just reframe it in this positive or empowering way. I tried to go to strip clubs with my guy friends and and I knew young women when I was in my early 20s who would go to strip clubs and they seemed to enjoy it and they seemed to think it was fun. I don't know whether or not they actually did or they were just pretending to or they thought it was like the cool thing to do. But I tried and I I just found it all really depressing and disturbing. I always did. I thought pornography was disgusting and it didn't make me feel sexy. It made me feel the opposite of sexy. You know, it made me not want to have sex. It made me not like men. That's one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is that I'm quite often accused of being like anti-sex or anti-men, which is so far from the truth. It's laughable, maybe to my own detriment, but <laughs> but um, because of my criticisms of pornography and prostitution and the sex trade in general, but it's like, I think that those industries are the real anti-sex thing. I mean, they don't paint sex or men in a positive light. They paint it in this really violent, vile, dehumanizing, degrading, obviously misogynistic light. I mean, I just, I can't imagine how that's supposed to be sex positive, any of it. But needless to say, it didn't really fit. And so as I started reading more radical feminist writing, as I came into contact with other women who were involved in the women's movement, who were making arguments against pornography and fighting against the legalization of prostitution, I felt validated, <laughs> to use a cliched term nowadays. But it, I was like, okay, I'm not crazy, right? Like, it's not just me that I don't like this or that I don't feel comfortable with it or that I don't think that it's good for women. This is correct. And we're being fed a bunch of propaganda. And so that's when I got really heavily involved in criticisms of the sex trade, but criticisms of third wave feminism in general. So I sort of became a well-known feminist voice, a well-known feminist writer, because I was saying all these things that you weren't really supposed to say as a young woman during that time. And I was almost one of the only ones. And I was attacked viciously for it by the left and by, they're called liberal feminists, but I don't think they're particularly liberal. But I guess I suppose third wave feminists, you know, the kind of mainstream Jezebel, Jessica Valenti, feministing, all of those blogs that are around back in the Aughts. So I was doing that radio show at Co-op Radio and blogging somewhere else from, I don't know, maybe 2010 to 2012. The collective disbanded, let's say that's a very polite way of putting it, but I was ostracized and kicked out of the collective unceremoniously on account of wanting to cover the trans issue. This was back in 2012, right? And so the debate was happening in radical feminism, but really nowhere else. Nobody else was talking about 
the trans ideology and the like misogyny and sexism behind these ideas and what might happen to women and women's spaces over this. Only radical feminists were talking about this. And then there were, you know, this faction of liberal feminists, of course, who were at that point saying something along the lines of trans women are women. So there was a debate brewing. There were some trans activists around back then, but yeah, nobody else was really paying much attention and nobody was talking about it really in a critical way. But I wanted to cover that and the the rest of the collective kind of got freaked out by that. And, and so things fell apart and I started Feminist Current, you know, like I started Feminist Current because I was like, well, where else are we going to be able to have these conversations? There's nowhere else that I can publish my work. Like, I can't talk about the things that I want to talk about, either on a podcast or in interviews or anywhere else in the media or in writing. So I need my own website. And and thank God, because there wasn't really anywhere else to say these things. And it gave so many other women an opportunity and a platform to talk about these things as well. And a lot of the the women who've been published at Feminist Current over the years are women who in general would never have the opportunity to publish elsewhere because they're not professionals. Um, they're not part of the right cliques. I publish a lot of obviously amateur writers, but also academics and, and so on and so forth. So the trans issue was part of your like consciousness even before Feminist Current started. That had been on your radar already. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, and just barely, you know, I was kind of only just exploring it then. But I wanted to understand it. And part of the reason that I started speaking out about it was because Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter, which is Canada's oldest transition house and rape crisis line, and they had been involved in this case that began way back in like 1995 that ended up and it went through the BC Human Rights Tribunal. And the issue was that this self-identified trans woman named Kimberly Nixon had come to one of the trainings for counselors. So for women who are counseling, women who are coming to the transition has to escape domestic violence or calling in because they'd experienced sexual assault or something of the like. And he was told by the collective, Vancouver Rape Relief is run by a collective of women, that only women could train as counselors. And he did not want to accept that. So he took them to court and tried to sue them. And they won. They won the right to define their own membership is what they won. Ever since they had been viciously attacked by activists as transphobic. And so that was part of my introduction to this debate, because these were women who I worked with and interviewed and allied with. And and I was I was just livid. I was so angry that anybody would go after a rape crisis center. There's so few of these kinds of places that exist at all. They struggle for funding. These women built this up themselves over decades just to help women and women who have nowhere else to go. You know, if you're going to a transition house, you probably don't have very many resources. You can't afford to just go rent another apartment or go stay in a hotel or something like that. Things have to be pretty serious. And for for leftist, so-called leftist activists to be going after 
these women and a transition that as I just thought was so wrong and horrible. And so that's really how I got involved in the debate. I wanted to understand why women needed women only spaces. I wanted to understand the history of this case. And, you know, I looked at all different sides. I didn't assume that I was right from the get go. I did explore trans activist arguments. Yeah. And I mean, ever since then, it's just been constant attacks and it's just gotten worse and worse and worse, especially as I testified against Canada's gender identity legislation back in, in 2017, which really blew things up for me. <laughs> yeah, that was a big shift. Can you explain that shift, like what that whole concept meant, means? Yeah. So I think the radical feminist community was sort of involved in this battle back in 2012 and much earlier too with Mishfest and you know Janice Raymond wrote a book about this back in 79 but things really started blowing up in 2015 I would say and in 2016 the liberals the Canadian Liberal Party introduced Bill C-16 um, which became Canada's gender identity legislation which would incorporate gender identity and gender expression into the human rights code and the criminal code to protect that as a category to protect people who identified as trans from discrimination and under hate speech laws. So I was concerned that this would nullify women's sex-based rights. And I felt that the idea of gender identity was sexist in and of itself. You know, I argued that women were not defined by gender stereotypes, that it didn't matter if girls liked pink and wanted to play with dolls or not, and that your sex was just your sex. And that, you know, feminists had fought for so long to say women can be whoever they want to be, which doesn't mean you can be a man. You still have to be a woman. But I mean, your personality doesn't have to match these restrictive gender roles. And feminists made the same arguments about men. Men don't have to be these unemotional, overly aggressive, always strong, never cry, never weak. Men can like so-called girl things or women things too. I was concerned about the impact that it would have on spaces that were designated for women-only change rooms, transition houses, prisons. And we've seen all of this come to fruition and much worse. I didn't even think about the the sports issue at the time and things have just gotten so out of control. I didn't I didn't realize how how crazy things would get even then even as I was so worried and concerned and was trying to like raise the alarm to everyone that could listen. I didn't realize that kids were going to be mutilated and be given puberty blockers and hormones and have their lives ruined and be rendered sterile before they even understand what sex and reproduction really is. It wasn't a self-ID law. It wasn't the same as the fight that they were having in the UK and that they are having in Scotland. But the effect was the bill didn't say anything about self-ID and changing your, your birth certificate or your driver's license or anything like that. It didn't say anything so specific. It was just to protect gender identity and gender expression under the human rights and the criminal code. Um, and under our hate speech laws. But as soon as that bill passed in 2017 and became legislation, the policy quickly shifted across the provinces so that 
men and boys were allowed in girls and women's washrooms. And so that it became very easy, you know, you can just fill out a form to change your ID. You don't have to have lived as a woman, as it were, for any amount of years. You don't need a diagnosis from a doctor or psychologist of gender dysphoria. So all of those things followed. It set a precedent, in other words. And so you covered things as they happened. What were some of the things you saw? What happened after that bill passed was there are men in Canada who are being housed in women's prisons who've identified as women. There are sexual assaults and harassment, and that's been happening for some years now in women's prisons. I mean, there's no debate in Canada. Pretty much every single other transition house or rape crisis center, sexual assault center, uh, women's shelter across Canada has allowed men in, aside from Vancouver Rape Relief. There's no one else who's held firm on that. So there's been lots of cases of women having to share rooms in a shelter with men and being afraid and having to leave the shelter, complaining and being accused of being transphobic. Obviously, men and, and boys are being allowed to compete in sport as as girls and women. And there was the case of Jonathan Yaniv slash Jessica Yaniv, which was why I was kicked off of Twitter four years ago, in large part. It was also because I was pushing back against transgender ideology and some powerful activists and people at Twitter wanted me off and wanted to shut me up. But Jonathan Yaniv famously in Vancouver went around asking female estheticians, most of whom were working alone out of their homes, were immigrants, English as a second language, asking them to give him a Brazilian bikini wax. And when they would realize that he was a man, they would say, oh, sorry, no, we don't do this service for men. And he would try to extort money out of them and if they wouldn't go along, he took them to, he took like 13 women, I think. He dragged them through this human rights tribunal process. He tried to sue. He lost, actually, thank goodness. But it was a really, really harrowing experience for these women who were new to Canada, didn't have a lot of resources, didn't have a lot of money. Their names were being dragged through the mud across the media. Meanwhile, his name was being protected under a publication ban at the time. A lot of them lost their businesses over it. It was incredibly stressful. And I was banned for Twitter for referring to this guy as he or him. Can you tell me a little bit about what you experienced from your point of view there? It was really hard. I had been involved in the left in Canada for some time. You know, I grew up in a very leftist and a, in a Marxist family. I identified as socialist. Um, we had been big supporters of the NDP for my whole life, which is Canada's and BC's leftist party, their labor party, essentially. In other words, um, my dad was a union guy who was really involved in the labor movement when I was a kid. And I had been working at this online news magazine, I guess you could call it, called Rabble.ca, which was a, a leftist site, a labor site, you know, heavily supported by the NDP. And they were getting a lot of funding from the unions. And there was a huge, massive campaign and petitioned to be fired. I was working part time as an editor there and as a podcast producer there. And I was writing and producing journalism for them as well. And it was just this endless, relentless, ongoing, years long campaign to have me ousted 
And when I did finally kind of start speaking out more loudly and trying to write about the problems with gender identity ideology and this movement and the impact on women, then things really got bad. And yeah, there was a huge petition to have me fired that was signed by thousands of people across Canada. It felt like almost the entire Canadian left was after me. I wasn't allowed to speak about it either. My employer wouldn't let me speak about the petition or that there was this campaign to have me fired. So I felt muzzled. All of my coworkers totally ostracized me and stopped speaking to me and sort of blamed the whole thing on me as though I was this like big troublemaker and why can't I just like go along and I was making their lives hard because you know these were their friends this was their little club so much of that is about careerism so many of these people are dependent on these unions and these parties for their jobs these activist circles are also their social circles and so they kind of all just go along and anyone who steps out of line is is punished viciously. So in the end, I wasn't fired uh, because my employers went through every single thing that I'd produced at Rabble and couldn't find any evidence of transphobia. But I was completely ostracized and they started to censor me after that. And when they did censor an article that I wrote criticizing Planned Parenthood's adoption of, of terms like menstruator and birthing people, they published it and then took it down and accused me of transphobia. And I was like, well, what's transphobic in the article? I didn't say anything transphobic. I'm I'm talking about this language that erases women. And they wouldn't really engage with me in that. And so I quit in protest over being censored in this way. And that was in 2015, I believe. I remember you had some speaking events where there were like trans activist mobs and that kind of thing. That was super frightening to me. Yeah, then it, yeah, it got really scary once I think we managed to do our first event. The first talk that I did about the impact of gender identity ideology on women's rights was in Ontario. Actually, Lindsay Shepard organized that. And shortly thereafter, we were able to organize one in Vancouver in 2019. And that was a huge fight because we were trying to hold it at the Vancouver Public Library and they were trying to kick us out and we had to get our lawyers involved. Yeah, I mean, pretty much every event that I've done has been protested and we've gotten death threats and we have to have a police presence. And it's really scary. Every event that I've done, I'm scared that I'm going to get hurt or killed. I, I did an event at the Seattle Public Library and the library refused to let us have private security. And I just, I you have to get up and give a talk and you're scared somebody's going to shoot you. People carry guns in the U.S. And in Toronto, there was something like 700 protesters at my talk, outside my talk at the Toronto Public Library. We had a huge, massive police presence. The police had to block off the entire block just so I could get in safely. I was supposed to do media interviews after the event and the police wouldn't let me because they were so scared. Like the police were scared. They were like, you got to go right now. We're getting you out of here. Like, And the people who attended the event were being threatened and verbally abused and called all sorts of names. 
And they, you know, they fought so hard, the Toronto leftists and the Canadian literary community, because they felt angry that the library was hosting me. They felt that they had ownership over this space and they tried to pressure the head librarian there to cancel the event and she refused. And so, of course, they went after her and it's just had all these other massive repercussions for all sorts of other people because I gave a talk. And if you listen to my talk, I barely even say anything about trans people. You know, I talk about women's rights and why we have these rights and why it matters and what gender means. And that, again, that this ideology is enormously sexist. So it's just, it's all, it's always been very strange to me because I never really felt like I was saying anything particularly offensive. I just felt like I was saying basic stuff and people act like it's hate speech. Literally, I'm accused of hate speech all the time. So you got banned from Twitter, which must have affected everything. Yeah, that was actually really awful, too. I'm back on now. Joe Rogan and Elon Musk brought me back. So that's awesome. But uh Yeah, I was banned for four years, though. And when I got banned, I was really upset and I was really scared. You know, I'm independent. I'm fully independent. I'm a writer and a podcaster, and I'm totally reliant on individual donors to support my work and on my subscribers. You know, I don't have funders. I don't have advertisers. I don't work for anybody. And I was like, how am I going to survive? Like, how am I going to get my work out there? I was hugely reliant on Twitter as a platform. So I almost felt like I had to start over from scratch. I mean, I had all these subscribers and donors and supporters from Feminist Current, but I don't love social media. I don't want to spend a bunch of time on that. You know, I want to do my work, but this is the world we live in. So it was it was dumb of me to be so reliant, I suppose, on Twitter as a platform. I didn't I never thought I would be banned. I know that when I was, some people interviewed me and were like, oh well you must have known that if you kept saying these things, you know, if you keep referring to men as he and so on and so forth, you'd get banned. I was like, no, I never thought I would get banned for calling a man he, not in a million years. <laughs> like, yeah, and we sued and I appealed over and over and over and over again and they just fully ignored it. We lost our case. I mean, there was just nothing we could do because the people, the powers that be just didn't want me back. So it didn't matter. There was no accountability process. Nobody even really explained to me what I did wrong. They told me which tweets I was banned for, and they said hateful conduct. But they didn't say which rule I broke. You know, I was like, you can't just ban me. I mean, obviously they can. But I was like, you can't just ban me for doing something when you won't even tell me what it is that I can't do. Like, it's not like I was ever told explicitly, you can't call this man he you can't say that men aren't women like why would saying men aren't women be considered hate speech why would i ever in one million years think that that would be considered hateful conduct it's so crazy and you know because i was banned from twitter people used that as an excuse to essentially libel me oh well she's so awful she was banned from twitter that's how bad she is So it had all sorts of negative repercussions. I mean, and I I experienced so much social ostracization in Vancouver. And it got to a point where I didn't feel safe there. I was stalked around my neighborhood by this trans activist who was actually involved in politics, local politics. And I didn't feel safe at all. I mean, these trans activists 
were so unhinged and so threatening and so violent and there were never really any repercussions. The left supported them wholeheartedly and acted as though women like me deserved violence and deserved to be threatened and bullied and shut down. Everything that these trans activists were doing were justified because, you know, I was the same as a Nazi, according to them. I didn't even really feel safe walking around in the city alone at a certain point. You know, they put up posters all around the city with my face on it, calling me a transphobe. And and again, I was I was one of the only ones in Canada who was talking about this. Like there were lots of other people. They agreed with me behind the scenes, but it wasn't their faces that were out there. To me, it now looks like that situation has multiplied or where Kelly J. Keene in New Zealand, high-profile feminists and speakers who are getting called the same things and being harassed in the same way. And the violence is ramping up a great deal. What happened to Kelly J. was horrifying. And it's exactly what I'm always afraid of. I mean, I would, that's, I have, I've always only done indoor events for that reason that I can guarantee. And I won't do it unless there's a police presence. It's too scary. And I knew something terrible would happen if I didn't have assurance and that I had protection. And and then, you know, of course, I mean, Kelly J, I think, narrowly escaped something really horrible happening. And thank God for her security team. But, you know, that was really, really scary for me to watch. Yeah, I can imagine. You must feel some kind of way about like having been the kind of a lone voice or one of a very few expressing yeah. these concerns. And now it's kind of breaking up or how do you see it? Things have changed a lot in terms of public conversation, the public debate. You know, way more people now are speaking out about this than they were even a couple of years ago. Certainly when I started speaking out about this. I'm obviously very frustrated because I just feel like over and over and over and over and over again, someone, often a man, but not always, will speak up and say, what's happening here? Why is no one talking about this except for me? Where are all the feminists on this? Why aren't women enraged? And I'm just like, man, like I was trying to get your attention for so many years and other women were trying to get your attention for so many years. And we were blackballed and censored and shut out and vilified and threatened and fired and punched. And nobody listened to us. You know, we tried to warn people. I tried to warn people before this legislation passed because I was worried about what would happen. And then it did. And no one really paid attention. I mean, I'm glad for anybody to speak up about this, but for people to speak up and be like, What's happening? Why didn't anybody try to stop this? I'm like, oh my God, you could have supported women back then who were fighting alone with no money, no resources, no platforms, no political power, no social power. So that's really maddening because it almost feels like it's too late. Like, I don't want to be cynical. I think things are turning around, you know, especially in terms of these gender identity clinics for kids being shut down and scrutinized and sued in some places. But I think it's so just awful and unforgivable that it even happened in the first place. Like they're suing because, you know, these young women in particular are realizing that they were rushed into this thing that destroyed their body and their lives. For a lot of people, it's too late to go back. And I think that the people who did that to them are 
you know, criminals to do that to minors, I think is unforgivable. It's not stopping fast enough. Like, yeah, gender clinics are like Tavistock closed, but I think gender clinics are still proliferating here in the U.S. Oh, yeah. And in Canada, for sure. In Canada, still very little is happening in terms of pushback. We're seeing a lot of pushback in places like the U.K., Scotland, and we're seeing now a lot of pushback in the U.S. from the right wing. There's a number of red states now who have banned puberty blockers and hormones for minors and gender affirming, so-called gender affirming surgeries for minors. But, you know, there's also a lot of states that are not doing those things and where kids still can be prescribed puberty blockers and hormones and get mastectomies and so on and so forth. Yeah, like J.K. Rowling said, it's the biggest a medical scandal. Yeah, it's the biggest medical scandal of this century or or humanity. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about like obviously the trans movement is a very complex phenomena. But do you have any like big picture analysis like what the drivers are? Well, I think one of the biggest drivers is money. So much of this is about profit. There's this whole industry now of these clinics and big pharma is profiting enormously. You know, if you get a kid who identifies as trans onto puberty blockers, it's most likely that they're going to go on hormone treatments and then they have a customer for life. Like you have to stay on those for life if you continue being trans, which I think that most trans identified people are not desisting. And if you've gotten all these surgeries and all these hormone treatments and your body's all messed up, like I think you're probably going to try to maintain. But, you know, they're making, these surgeons are making tons and tons of money. Big Pharma's making tons and tons of money. All these trans organizations and charities, these people, all their jobs all depend on the maintenance of this idea of trans and of encouraging people to transition everybody's profiting from it. People are making so much money off of this. And I think that initially one of the main drivers was really just men, you know, men who had these, who were autogonophilic, you know, who had fetishes, cross-dressing fetishes. Autogonophilia is the idea of, you know, you're turned on at the idea of yourself as a woman, of seeing yourself as a woman, being seen as a woman. It's a sexual turn on. So these guys, I think, wanted to legitimize their fetish and their identity. And so push this in the same way that gay rights was supported. They were like, oh, born this way. Like, I'm I'm just trans. This is just who I am. I can't help it. Accept me as I am. Some kids are just trans. None of this makes any sense, of course. You know, there's, I don't think there's any such thing as a kid who is born in the wrong body, who, you know, a boy who has a girl brain, that concept is totally incoherent. But that was really successful, especially because progressives and liberals want to support marginalized populations and trans activists framed trans people as a marginalized population, just like gay people. And, and yeah, it it was, it was really successful. I guess it goes some way in explaining the enormous capture of our institutions, academic institutions, 
every kind of institution we have, really, the medical field, etc. I'm just thinking it has to be motivated by something in addition to money. Well, a lot of people jumped on this bandwagon and can't get off. I do still think that a lot of people's careers are dependent on their purported support of the trans rights movement. I mean, if you didn't go along with this ideology in an academic institution, you wouldn't make it. Like you had to. And we've seen how there are a very, very, very small number of women who've spoken up in academic institutions and they've been viciously harassed and threatened. But if you were just coming up, you didn't have a tenure track position, you could never speak out about this because you'd just never get work. You'd never get a job. You'd have to go find something else to do. And same with politics. I mean, if you want to maintain your political career and you're a progressive or a liberal, you absolutely have to go along with this trans women or women mantra. You have no choice. You won't get anywhere and you'll lose your job and you'll lose any chance at winning whatever seat you're you're trying to win. And, you know, that happens in all sorts of other contexts, I'm sure. But the institutional capture is a huge problem because while the public conversation is changing and people are getting angry about men competing as women in sports and kids being transitioned and men walking into women's change rooms and men being transferred into women's prisons and sexually assaulting these women, the institutions aren't changing their policies. The laws in Canada aren't changing, although they are in some other places. So I'm glad for that. Or the UN. I mean, there are really big, big institutions that are now oh, yeah. towing this line. Human Rights yeah. Watch, like those, yeah. all of those big organizations are on board with all of this. The vast majority of our media is on board with all of this and, and referring to men as she, you know, like a woman <laughs> raped a 12-year-old girl and you read it and you're like, oh, that wasn't a woman, like you reported on this as a she because those are his preferred pronouns. Like, that's disgusting. Women are being forced to refer to their assailants in court as she <laughs> when they're men. It's just, it's mass gaslighting. And it's, yeah. it's so, it's so egregious and offensive. It's hard to look at this and not think that it's a backlash against women's gains or feminists or some version of that. Right. I mean, I don't think that necessarily was the overt motive of these people, but that's what it has been. It's an opportunity for men who hate women to hate women. And that's what we see from these trans activists, vicious misogyny, you know, men threatening to beat up women, which in what other context would that be acceptable, except for this context, wherein A, they can claim to be women, so it's not male violence against women. And B, we're witches and we're so horrible and dangerous. We're responsible for violence. Our words, our words in defense of women's rights and in defense of material reality and in defense of kids, our words are so dangerous and violent. We're responsible for the death of trans people, which is not, there's no epidemic of murder of trans people or even violence against trans people in particular. Trans people are not murdered or assaulted any more than anybody else's. I mean, the things that women are called, the things that I have been called, I mean, we saw what happened to J.K. Rowling 
you know, she was subject to the most abhorrent misogynistic death threats, rape threats, you know, thousands, thousands of them, because she stood up for women's rights and questioned this neutralizing of language in reference to women and women's bodies. And she's an incredibly compassionate woman. I'm not sure if you listened to the the witch trials of J.K. Rowling. The I podcast did. It's the so thing. good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's so good. Yeah, And she's, you know, she really does care about people who are identifying as transgender. She wants them to be safe and be treated with dignity and respect and not be discriminated against or bullied. But she also cares about women's rights and she cares about the repercussions of this movement and these laws and this ideology on women and kids. And trans-identified people don't not have rights. These people have the same rights as everyone else does. There's no such thing as a trans right. What's being called a trans right is the right of men to access women-only spaces and the right of men to identify as women legally. You know, like if this was just about people doing what they wanted to do in their own lives in the privacy of their own home, we wouldn't be having these conversations. If a man wants to wear women's clothing and, you know, grow his hair long and call himself Sheila, okay, go ahead and do that. But you're changing the law and it's impacting other people, thousands and thousands and thousands of other people. You know, this is nullifying these hard fought for rights for women, you know, that women fought for for decades and decades. I just want to talk a little bit about the shape that this is taking. I see there are connections between certain forces in society, like the rise of pornography, the rise of the internet, really. Plastic surgery getting a lot more yeah. sophisticated and a much bigger business. Do you make these connections between like transgenderism and some of these other forces that are going on? Yeah, I mean... There is a porn connection. And that connection is that, like, so if you talk to women, and I have, I've had them on the podcast before, women who've been in relationships with or married to men who trans, their stories are always the same. And it's that their partner developed a cross dressing fetish, you know, like he wanted to wear women's clothing in the bedroom because it made him feel sexy. He got into so-called tranny porn and that progressed into him wanting to wear the women's clothing, the women's outfits outside of the house and wanting to dress as a woman in public. And part of it is he's still watching all this porn and the fetish is becoming more ingrained, but he's also engaged in all these internet forums, right? People talk a lot about Tumblr, and what a what an enormous impact that's had on kids as well as adults. You know, these kids are reading these forums, these trans forums about like girls who've transitioned and now they look like boys and they feel so much better and they're cool and confident and all of their, you know, girl insecurities and body insecurities have disappeared. And this is the solution to all of your problems and you won't be bullied anymore and so on and so forth. But adult men, too would be on these trans forums and getting more and more involved in it. They would be told and learn and come to believe this isn't just a fetish. This isn't just a sex thing. You really are a woman. 
and you can identify as a woman and anyone who tells you otherwise is a bigot and hates you. So I think the internet and porn have a lot to do with it. This gaming internet world where kids are just online 24-7 and seeing porn really early and seeing trans porn and getting really heavily involved and brainwashed by this trans ideology. So much of it is happening online and then they go to school and they're being taught the ideology now. And so the only place they can really get any pushback is from their parents. And then they're told by the world and by their school that if their parents push back, they're abusive and they should run away. Their parents don't love them then and they're bad people. It's horrible. I've been waiting for years for this to just hit some kind of tipping point or some kind of bottom. And it hasn't. And it just kind of keeps escalating, it feels to me. Maybe it's not. Maybe things are changing. What do you see? I know you can't predict. Neither of us can. But what do you what do you wish happened? I mean, every time I think every time I think the tables are turning, something happens and I'm like, oh, maybe it's just getting worse. Actually, it's so hard to tell when you're in the middle of it. And, you know, and I'm so connected to people who are opposed to gender identity ideology or who just think this whole thing is insane. So, you know, I don't really involve myself in circles where people think that you're transphobic (laughs) if you think that trans women are men. I don't, why would I do that to myself? It's so strange because it's still, it really is a minority of people who actually believe in this ideology. It's a very small minority of people who genuinely believe trans women are women. Most people in the world either don't care or they think it's ridiculous. You know, they know what a man is and they don't think it's possible to change sex. But Again, it's this institutional capture that's really troubling. So in the mainstream, the trans movement is gaining more and more power. Mm -hmm. In public discourse, no, I don't think so. I think people are getting really angry, especially parents who are fearful for their kids. I mean, I talk to so many parents who have kids who are, you know, 14, 15, again, often girls, who are saying they're trans. They want to go on puberty blockers. They want to go on hormones. Um, and they have to fight them and their kids hate them for it. So I'm really glad that the public debate is changing and happening. But I mean, we got to we have to get into the schools and we have to change the media and we have to change the laws. And that's yeah. a huge struggle. That's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. But I do I do see some people doing it, especially in the U.S. So that does give me some hope. But I don't know. I mean, it's so much about power and money and the people with power and money are very much on board with this movement. Very much on board. Yeah. Yeah. I know you have a new show. You want to tell us about it? Yeah. So my new podcast and YouTube channel, it's called The Same Drugs. That's on all the podcast apps, on YouTube, on Rumble, on Substack, Megan Murphy at Substack. Yeah. And I really appreciate people's support because that's 
that's what I do for yeah. my... What is the new show about? What are you trying to do that's different from Feminist Current? I wanted to move away from just focusing on feminism and women. You know, I wanted to be able to talk about... I mean, I talk about all sorts of things. I interview anybody I find interesting on that show. So I interview people about, you know, martial arts. I've had MMA guys on. I just had this guy on who started the first Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym in Portland. And he just wrote a book called The Gift of Violence. So he talks about martial arts and self-defense and and also about trying to develop a better relationship to violence, especially for men, how women can protect themselves and set better boundaries. I do a lot of work around free speech and civil liberties. I, you know, really was vocally opposed to the vaccine mandates, to the lockdowns and to the media censorship and political censorship around those conversations. I'm a big advocate of open debate and I'm a big advocate of the truth. I think there's so many conversations that need to be opened up that are being shut down by the media and by politics and by progressives, including conversations around things like lab-grown meat and prostitution always. I still do a ton of work around prostitution and pornography. And and I actually, I've noticed that conversation changing too. I've noticed a lot more men wanting to talk about the harms of prostitution and pornography, which I think is really great. But man, that's a big industry to fight. So yes, all yes, sorts it of is. stuff over there. Yeah, but I'm yeah. glad for it because I th I've been able to open up my audience beyond just women and feminists and have conversations with a wider variety of people, which is really what I'm interested in. Yeah. Well, thank you for modeling independent thinking so well. Like we need it. We really need non-tribal thinking, I feel yeah. like. Thanks. I appreciate that. I really, I think it's super important too. And I really, I really just want people to be having conversations with people who are different than them. I want to be learning and again, having open debate. I, I really don't like these political bubbles that so many of us have gotten stuck in. Yeah, <laughs> so damaging. Well, thank you so very much for talking to me. I really yeah, enjoyed great the conversation. Yeah, to talk to you. Yeah, I did too. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. <laughs>